And I wish you could know how good you look to me tonight. It's like coming home. Years ago, when I was in law practice in Riverside County, I had a home up on the Ortega Highway up above Lake Elsinore, just over the mountain from here. And coming back here, it's just like coming home. Good to be here. Although the traffic isn't what it used to be. <laughs> I've got enough miles on the odometer, I can remember when the road outside the church here was the 395, and that's how you got to San Diego. We didn't have this kind of traffic then. Simpler days back then. You know, back in that era, all we had to worry about was a third-rate burglary called Watergate. Makes me think that the ideal bumper sticker would be, come back, Nixon, all is forgiven. <laughs> but how times have changed. And the world isn't that simple anymore. And take a look at the world into which you're being swept. Take a serious look at it. And if you did not have the Advent message, if you did not have the hope that prophecy gives us that this whole thing turns out right, you would have room for serious concern tonight. Let me give you just a couple of examples. You're all aware that uh, not long ago, North Korea launched a satellite into polar orbit. It went right over the uh, Super Bowl stadium. Problem is, we don't know what's in that thing. We do know that a nuclear device detonated over America at orbital altitude would turn the lights off over much, if not most, of North America. The uh, pulse from that thing would fry uh, most electronics that we have down here. Our style of life now is pathetically dependent on that spider web of very thin wires and step-down and step-up transformers and the very fragile and very vulnerable computers that make it all work. And in an instant, one bright flash in the sky, and that stuff could all be decommissioned. Now, what would happen? Well, what would happen would be we would be instantly propelled back into the 19th century. Think about it. Our whole program of life these days hangs on that one thread of electrical energy. Take that away, and we have no way to preserve our food. We have no lights. We probably have no heat or cooling for our homes. And when those big pumps spin down that provide us water pressure, Pretty soon we've got no water. Now for the urban family whose pantry is typically the shelves of the nearest supermarket, that means within a matter of a very few days or in some instances a very few hours, we're worried now about where the next meal is coming from and when the water ceases to flow and those tanks empty and we no longer have water, now we're facing a really serious problem this becomes a survival mentality. A book has been written about it by a newscaster that I was well aware of back when I was in the business. The point being that if you look at this world from a strictly human perspective, the future is not reassuring. Now, recently, Joellen and I were in our home out in the mountains, and we lost power. Power went out. You know, the lights flicker twice, and then it's time for Lassie to go outside, you know? And we had no light. We had no heat, whatever, because our home is electrically heated. We couldn't even make a telephone call because our high-tech telephone not only needs low-voltage power from the telephone company, it's got to be plugged into 110. So what did we do? Well, the first thing I did was light a kerosene lamp. Now we had light. Then I made a fire in the wood stove in the bedroom. Now we had heat. And I went to the faucet, and the water flowed as usual because the springs up the hill from our house come down, feed us water from the force of gravity. 
We were inconvenienced a little bit. We didn't have quite the convenience of power, but we didn't face an existential threat. Now, question is, why would Waltons find themselves in a circumstance where the loss of power, which would be so threatening to so many urban dwellers, was no threat whatever? And my response is, years ago, Joellen and I chose to believe something called the spirit of prophecy. Just that simple. We went looking for a home of the sort described in a little booklet called Country Living. So there's a great deal to be gained from simply understanding prophecy and applying it in a practical way in your life. Well, we've talked a little bit about what would happen in America if just one thing occurred. It could also happen from uh, computer hacking. That could shut our power system down, too, and that may be the likelier way it goes because Sony Pictures had 45, 45, count them, firewalls set up in their computer system, and whoever got in there blasted through all of them and created real problems for Sony Pictures. And just this week, a hospital in Los Angeles paid money to have somebody who had invaded their computer system unlock it so they could get to their patient files. That's how vulnerable our world is. Now, let's move back a little bit, move the camera back, so we're not just looking at ourselves. Let's take a look at the larger world around us. An awakening Russian bear has emerged from a quarter century of hibernation and flexed its muscles in the Middle East. And today, Russian Sukhoi 35 fight, uh, fighter aircraft, strike fighter aircraft, still bearing the Red Star, are parked in Syria. Now think about that. Russia's flag, uh, flag has changed. When I was on active duty, we looked for the red banner. Now it's blue, white, and red, a different flag. But that Red Star and the fuselage and wings of Russian military aircraft is still there. Krasnaya Zvezda, they call it, the Red Star, it is still on their aircraft. And today, Russian armor is present on the ground in the Middle East for the first time since 1973. Take it one step further, Vladimir Putin, while we are playing checkers, that man is playing chess, six or seven moves ahead of time. Notice what happens when his airplanes bomb. ISIS is pushed ever further southward. Now, when ISIS goes all the way south, whose border do they hit? Saudi Arabia. Think about this. If Saudi blows up, if something goes wrong there, what happens to the price of oil? It goes right back up from the basement where it is now into the stratosphere. And what happens to the Russian economy? Because they sell oil. We are in a world that is increasingly dangerous. A word Saudi Arabia is looking at all of this and reacting. They are terrified of an emerging nuclear Iran. Several years ago, when Abdul was still alive, when he was king, he warned the West. He said, if Iran gets nuclear weapons, we will go nuclear. Later on, that was repeated. Intelligence uh, sources began to pick up this information. Now we know Saudi Arabia is for all practical purposes nuclear because they have purchased nuclear weapons from Pakistan. They are sitting in Pakistan. They are awaiting a call for delivery. And meanwhile, Saudi Arabia has established down at Al-Watah. It's a missile base about 125 miles southwest of, uh, of uh, their capital city. And uh, out there in the desert southwest of Riyadh, there's a missile base for these CSS-2 missiles. They bought them from China. Things can carry 4,000 pounds, 1,700 miles. They launch off of rails. Guess which direction the rails are pointed. One set are pointed toward Israel. The other set are pointed toward Iran. What I'm getting at is, ladies and gentlemen, this world is dangerous. James Clapper, after 50 years in the intelligence community, said, I have never seen such a diverse array of threats as we face today. Meanwhile, in America, a nation that could once fight and win a two-ocean war, we find our reaction many times reduced to just empty political speeches. 
and most Americans recognize that as a denial of reality, now you're beginning to see the American public boil up with a growing level of anger. This presidential election is like nothing I have ever seen, and I've reported several of them. Even this gentleman has weighed in. Okay? Recognize him? Just yesterday, he said mass in El Paso while standing in Ciudad Juarez. And he also weighed into current American politics to some extent. The world is a dynamic, very, very changeable place. And I've never seen as unstable a world as we face today. So I'll say it again. Little, if anything, in today's world looks good, and then I want to add a follow-on thought. Should any of this surprise us? Should we be taken by surprise? Or should we recognize our world we're living in today from descriptions once penned in books like Great Controversy? Let me read you a description of today's world. Just a moment, we'll get to that. Let me preface that by saying there's something about the blessing of prophecy. Those who have access to prophecy never need to be surprised. You never need to be blindsided when it happens because prophecy has this unique capacity of breaking the code of the future and letting you know what's coming before it happens. When one of my, my first uh, set of orders when I was on active duty in the Navy was to report to Naval Base Charleston and I discovered the room I was working in had no windows and it had no access to the outside world directly. We went into that room through an antechamber, about 12 by 14 room. When the door was locked behind us securely, then the second door was open and we went into our working spaces. When we came out of there, having worked with some very uh, sensitive material, once again we would be put into this little antechamber and uh, we would have to lift our shoes up, a Navy petty officer would look at the soles of our shoes to be sure nothing was, you know, just inadvertently sticking to the bottom of our shoes that we could track out of there that might compromise security. So I recognize the value of codes, but I also recognize codes can be broken. And that happened in World War II. Set of code breakers were at work in Pearl Harbor, working on the JN-25 code. That was the code that the Japanese used basically to communicate with their Pacific fleet. And those guys finally broke it. They cracked the thing, not all the way. They couldn't read everything, but they could read enough to figure out that Admiral Yamamoto, the genius behind Pearl Harbor, was going to be on an airplane flying along the coast of New Guinea on a certain April day in 1943. That went all the way to the White House. Franklin Roosevelt said, if you can shoot him down, do it. And a flight of P-38s was at 20,000 feet, at the place and time where Yamamoto's message had said he would be, we had broken the code and they rolled into a firing pass, and that was the end of Japan's great admiral. We were able to do that and maybe change the whole course of the Pacific War because we had broken the code. Now think about prophecy. Prophecy breaks the code of the future and allows believers to know what's coming before it gets there to make sensible preparation, and most importantly of all, have faith and not feel fear. Now, I promised you I'd read a description of today's world. Let me do it. The spirit of anarchy is permeating all nations. Now, do you feel that coming on? Do you sense that? You can sense it in the tragedy events in the Middle East, you can sense it in the angry streets of America, anarchy is beginning to rear its ugly head in this world. The spirit of anarchy is permeating all nations and the outbreaks that from time to time excite the horror of the world. For example, a captured pilot being burned to death in an iron cage people being decapitated, people being crucified, or people losing their lives in an innocent Christmas celebration in nearby San Bernardino. The outbreaks that from time to time excite the horror of the world are but indications 
of the pent-up fires of passion and lawlessness that once, having escaped control, will fill the earth with woe and desolation. Now that description of our world is all too familiar. That's our world from the villages of Africa and the Middle East to the troubled streets of America where law and order are melting like snow. But guess when that description was penned? It was penned in 1905 in a book called Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9. Notice the word that the writer of that book chose to use, chose to use the word anarchy. I thought, well, if I'm going to be talking about this, maybe it would be wise to look it up in the dictionary, just to be sure I've got it right. And anarchy is defined as a state of disorder due to absence or non-recognition of authority. Now think about our world. In a thousand recognizable ways, our world is many ways coming apart. Overseas, we see murderous terror as a daily event. Now it's as close as San Bernardino. And I assume you're all aware that that wasn't all they had planned. The bigger plan of those who did what they did in San Bernardino was to get on an overpass over Highway 91. That leads from San Bernardino to Riverside. We all drive it all the time. It would get on an overpass, drop an explosive device onto the freeway, stop traffic, in the explosive snarl, people would get out of their cars or be stuck in their cars. Then these people were planning to open up with automatic weapons on the people who were stuck there. Ladies and gentlemen, that could have happened to any of us. Or if they had chosen Highway 15, instead of 91. What I'm saying is that this description from 1905 altogether too closely describes the world we're living in. There's almost nothing less frightening than anarchy. It means the normal protections of society and restraint are gone. You're at the mercy of the mob. But here's the advantage of being a sincere believer in revealed truth. We have access to a broken code. We know what's coming. And from that, it logically follows we should be able, through faith and common sense, to prepare. Prophecy breaks the seal on the future and opens a wide window onto what is happening in, in our world. Now, let me talk about how I think prophecy really gets involved in the world we're living in. All of this stuff if you do some research, has to do with the Holy Spirit. Now, you may not see the linkage immediately, but let me tell you why I've come to that conclusion. Think about it. If you believe the Bible at all, in the morning of human history, there was also a violent world filled with strife and contention and the collapse of law. Genesis 6 puts it this way, there were giants in the earth in those days, mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And here's the verse that always leaves me wondering. It repented the Lord he had made man on the earth. <laughs> As almost as he's saying, I really made a mistake there. Well, of course, God isn't subject to those kinds of things. He always knows the end from the beginning. I think this is the Bible's way of showing God's grief at seeing how badly people could take the image of God expressed in living form and treat it so badly. So it grieved God at his heart. Now look at what happened next. I'm still reading from Genesis 6. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. The Holy Spirit gets involved in a world that's going bad. Holy Spirit's involved. The Holy Spirit will withdraw from a rebellious world. Now, the writer we were quoting a few moments ago who so accurately described our present world in 1905 put it this way. In the days of Noah, the Spirit of God was so long and stubbornly rejected that it ceased to strive with men. Holy Spirit, as mighty as that being is, 
is a gentleman, so to speak. If it is rejected long enough, it just backs away. But when the Holy Spirit backs off, when you reach a point where even the mighty Holy Spirit simply leaves rebellious people to themselves, something very bad happens. And now, one of the founders of our church adds an afterthought. Thus it will be prior to the end of the world. We can expect to see the restraining power of the Holy Spirit reluctantly withdraw from a world that has rejected God. Well, if we've got an ounce of curiosity, and I hope we do, the next question would be, well, what would a world look like where the Holy Spirit has withdrawn? Well, let's give you some examples. Let's talk first on the personal level. I'm going to talk a little bit about Adventist history. I assume most of us are Adventists here, but if you're not, just take a page from my experience. We were at home one day, and some Mormon missionaries came by. And I've always admired those young men who go out there and have a sense of, of a love for the faith that they believe in, that they're willing to share it, you know, serve a mission for a couple of years. So uh, they invited me to go to the local stake the next Sunday. I said, sure, I'll be there. I went. Now, when I went there, what if they had looked at me and said, oops, there's a non-Mormon here. We better not talk about some things. Let's just talk about generalities. Well, I would have been disappointed. I would have probably been a little angry because I went there. I wanted to hear what they had to say, right? I was in a Mormon church. They had a right to say what, what they believed. I wanted to hear about the word of wisdom and the celestial kingdom and the Book of Mormon, you know? I wanted to hear them talk about it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're in an Adventist church tonight, aren't we? <laughs> okay? So, let me just tell you frankly what I believe. In the history of Adventism, we believe the Holy Spirit spoke through a person, but she wasn't the first one heaven tried. First person heaven spoke to was a man by the name of Hazen Foss. He's a Caucasian fellow, Hazen Foss. He had visions that were identical to the ones later seen by Ellen Harmon, a 17-year-old young woman. We know that because he went to her and he said, what you've described is exactly what I saw and don't make the mistake I did. So he had these visions, and then the Holy Spirit impressed him. Share with the world what you have seen. And Hazen Foss said, ah, no thank you. I don't need that kind of rejection. I'm not into, into rejection. I just can't do that. Holy Spirit kept impressing him. Share with others what you have seen. And Hazen Foss said, no thank you. And he finally said it once too many times. What happened? Holy Spirit just withdrew. He could feel it happening. Something awful had happened to him. He wasn't quite sure he comprehended the extent of it, but he knew something really terrible was going on. Now he panics. He calls a meeting, calls a bunch of people into a meeting. He says, I've had visions from heaven, and I want to share them with you. And they sat there just in trance. They wanted to hear what he had to say. He got up front, and his mind was wiped cleaner than Hillary's server. <laughs> He couldn't remember a thing, nothing. He walked out of the meeting saying audibly, I am going to die a lost man. The Holy Spirit has left me. Somebody who was there said it was the awfulest meeting they had ever attended, ever, worst thing they'd ever seen. Well, guess what ha happened next? Heaven was still trying to reach the males of this world, okay? But heaven now chose an African-American man, William Foy. He saw the same visions. He tried to relate what he had seen. He didn't make the mistake Hazen Foss had made. He tried, but in the world of the 1840s, guess what happened? People didn't listen. I am convinced that William Foy is resting in the Lord, and he will see the Lord return, and he'll be in the kingdom. He tried isn't it interesting how the Lord, how heaven always foresees great social issues and is there ahead of us? 
Well, guess what happened next? Now heaven turned to a woman, young woman, 17 years old. By the way, what does Joel chapter 2 say? And your old man and young men and handmaidens will see visions. Well, a handmaiden might just describe a 17-year-old woman. She didn't want to do it either, but she wasn't about to make the mistake that Hazen Foss had made. She got up and told her story. Hazen Foss at one of these meetings stood outside and listened. Afterward, he went to her and he said, don't ever say no to the Holy Spirit. I did, and I'm dying, and I'm a lost man. And from that point on, for the next several decades, he lived into an advanced age. He never had any interest in religion again. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit withdraws, okay? On the personal level. Well, we're talking here in a prophetic and a global sense, a geo-religious sense, when the Holy Spirit reluctantly withdraws from a world. Let's take it one step further. Can the Holy Spirit withdraw sometimes with great regret from a nation? Remember the Sabbath school lessons a time or two back? And the, the, the Sabbath school lessons have really been good. Joellen is very faithful in studying her, her lesson and then reading to me uh, not only what is in the quarterly, but I always ask her, read to me what you wrote in answer to the questions, because that's what I'm most interested in. Anyway, we studied about Habakkuk and how Israel went into slavery for the second time. They had been delivered from slavery in Egypt. Moses warned them, disobey God one too many times. Say no to the Holy Spirit one too many times. You'll go right back into slavery. And now it was time for that to happen. Holy Spirit can withdraw sometimes on a national level. Sad thing when it happens. But could it also happen on a planetary level? And might that be what we are beginning to see today? What's it like when, a, when the Holy Spirit reluctantly but progressively withdraws from a rebellious world? All the while still looking for honest minds who are willing to listen. Because the end of time will see this world split into two camps. Those who rebel against God and those who hang on by faith no matter what the world throws at them. Well, let me go back now to the writings of that not-so-young woman in later life. She put it this way. Review and Herald, September 3, 1889. As the restraining power of the Holy Spirit shall be withdrawn, because of the impenitence and ingratitude of man, terrible things will be witnessed in the earth period, close quote. Now that's a kind of a general statement, isn't it? Terrible things. Well, that can hold an awful lot of word pictures, but it would be nice to get something a little more specific than that. So let's now bring the camera in and let's look at the details. What do these terrible things look like? Well, in volume four of the Spirit of Prophecy, the, this description is given. As long as Jesus remains man's intercessor in the sanctuary above, the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit is felt by rulers and people. God has his agents among the leading men of the nation. The enemy moves upon his servants to propose measures that would greatly impede the work of God, but statesmen who fear the Lord are influenced by holy angels Thus, a few men will hold in check a powerful current of evil. All right. Get the picture here. She describes how the Holy Spirit withdraws, but still tries to work through honest minds who are in positions to influence national policy and national events. Thank God those people are here. We can't always know who they are. We can't judge them. But God, heaven has people through whom heaven works. But notice when that process continues. It continues as long as Jesus remains man's intercessor. Where? In the sanctuary above. There is a sanctuary in heaven, and he's at work there. Now, let me stop a second. What I've just read to you tells us that our unique 
end time truth, the sanctuary message and an end time judgment holds the keys to what is going to happen to this world. Holds the key to our understanding of end time events. Lose that concept of what's going on, what Jesus is doing now in heaven for us. That is a unique doctrine, a unique understanding of this church found here and nowhere else. Lose that and you lose the capacity now to measure the progression of end time events because it hinges on what's happening in the sanctuary. Are you following me? Is this making any sense? It seems abstract that something going on in heaven would material affect the, materially affect the geopolitical forces in this world, but if the Holy Spirit is being withdrawn and Jesus' work in the heavenly sanctuary is a material part of that, then the whole thing becomes a unified whole. This family is a united family on earth and in heaven. And our citizenship is in the cosmos much more than it is here. Now, I recognize that in recent years it has become chic in certain quarters, even of Adventism, to say, well, wait a second. The pioneers of this church, bless their hearts, they meant well, but they weren't theologians. To, my, to which I respond, neither was the Apostle John. He was a fisherman. Well, the reasoning goes on. They weren't theologians. You know, they actually thought there was an end-time judgment hour message in Daniel 7, 8, and 9. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Before we write the pioneers of this church off, think about this. Most of them would, be, would have been a formidable opponent in an argument with their current critics. Let me give you three examples. J.N. Andrews, <laughs> he believed this. He believed the sanctuary message. He believed the Advent message. The man could read the word of God in seven different languages. Could use them, could speak and, and, and write in seven languages. His daughter was so skilled in languages that when they went to France to start our publishing work there, she wasn't a native French speaker. But she learned the French language so well, soon she was doing copy editing better than native-born French speakers could. J.N. Andrews could speak seven languages. He had committed the entire New Testament to memory and much of the old. I would put him up against any of his modern critics. Let me give you another example, Uriah Smith. Here's a guy who at the age of 13 has some sort of medical problem, loses a leg. He doesn't retreat into entitlement mentality. He invents a prosthetic device that earns him a U.S. patent that puts him back on his feet, and for the next 50 years, he's on his feet working for the Advent message and writing remarkable books like Daniel and Revelation. I'll give you one more. James White. Years ago, I was listening to a cassette tape that shows how, how long ago that was of a meeting held by some dissident, disaffected Adventists, listening to some guy trumpeting on and on about how naive the pioneers were. And he finally said, oh, let me talk about James White. He wasn't too sharp a cookie either. And in the background, you can hear nervous giggling. Well, let's talk about James White. I would not have wanted to appear opposite him in court. Let me give you an example. A few days after the disappointment in 1844, he's walking down the street in town. A village loudmouth hollers out, Why, Mr. White, are you still in the land of the living? James White responds, No, I'm not in the land of the living. I'm in the land of the dying. When Jesus comes, I'll be in the land of the living. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the pioneers. And I could move on to Ellen Harmon White, but then you don't have to listen to her because she's a plagiarist. You know how we know that? Because there are angry blogs and dissident publications who say so. Well, let me put it this way. You've convinced me. She is a plagiarist. She copied stuff. I can, I, she copied that information she had in 1863, you know, about tobacco being a cancerous poison. 
possible etiology of cancer was tobacco. Well, she copied that. I can show you where she got it. It was from New England Journal of Medicine, Winter Edition, 2015. <laughs> so, our sanctuary message isn't quite so far out after all, and it plugs into the crazy world we're starting to move into today. Jesus is working in the sanctuary above as long as he is intercessor. Something holds this world together. But when you feel this world starting to come apart, you might want to consider what's about to happen in heaven. Think about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if anything we have ever preached is true, you and I are living in the day of atonement. We're there. Now what happens in the day of atonement? Well, what happened in Israel was they cleaned things up. They cleaned their homes, they cleaned their lives, they ransacked their, their, their memories. Where have I been out of line of the will of God for the last year? Pious Jews still do it. As the high holy days approach, they engage in a process called teshuva. And they ransack their minds and they say to themselves, what do I need to make right? And they will make things right with other people. Why? Because a time is coming when, in their opinion, the Day of Atonement occurs and the Hebrew blessing, you know, Leshana Tobatikatevu, Leshana, shortened most of the time by Jews to just saying Shana Tobah, means may you be inscribed in the book of life, may you have a good seal. No question among our Jewish friends that the Day of Atonement is a Day of Judgment, just the way the Adventist pioneers came to understand. So we're living in the Day of Atonement. It might be wise for us to take our message, our lives, and our quality of faith very, very seriously. Let me just be practical and be a little obnoxious and intrusive. Maybe it's time to turn off the widescreen TV and turn on the Word of God. There comes a time when the cosmic war winds up. And guess what? Lucifer doesn't intend to go out gently. <laughs> now I'll go back to the writing of that remarkable woman who didn't say no to the Holy Spirit. When Jesus leaves the sanctuary, darkness covers the inhabitants of the earth. In that fearful time, the righteous must live in the sight of a holy God without an intercessor. The restraint which has been upon the wicked is removed. Satan has the entire control of the finally impenitent. God's long-suffering is ended. The wicked have passed the boundary of their probation. Now listen to the next phrase. The Spirit of God, persistently resisted, has at last been withdrawn. And when that happens, what happens to this world? Well, let me read you the last sentence of the paragraph. Satan will then plunge the inhabitants of the earth into one great final trouble. And a key strategy of his end time plan is to redirect the blame for that trouble to the people of God. Now, recently... We've gotten some advice from across the border fence with respect to a lot of things, including uh, some national policy issues. The same gentleman is reminding us that one of the longstanding traditions of our uh, nation is that you find rest and family unity on Sunday, don't you? And that's where you would expect to find people as the work week ends. Well, there will come a time when that will be an issue. Now let me read it to you from Great Controversy. Those who honor the Bible Sabbath will be denounced as enemies of law and order, as breaking down the moral restraints of society, causing anarchy. So we know anarchy lies out there in the future because God's people will be blamed for it. A frightened world will look at a globe collapsing into anarchy, and guess who gets blamed? The people of God, who John the Revelator says, keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. 
men of position and reputation, wealth, genius, education will combine with voice and pen by boasts, threats, and ridicule, they will stir up the passions of the people. So an entire world begins to act in anger. Having that insight from prophecy, I note the obvious anger in America during this election season with more than a passing glance because I begin to see something happening that tells me we're moving in a direction that prophecy says we will go. Well, what happens when angry people decide that maybe the only way of holding this world together would be to come together on a, on a global religious consensus? What happens then? What happens is angry people begin to be politically active. And the power comes not from Washington down onto the people. The power comes from the people up. And here's how volume five describes it. To secure popularity and patronage, legislators will yield. Oh my, isn't that hard to imagine? <laughs> to secure popularity and patronage, legislators will yield to the demand for what? For a Sunday law. I can see how Americans would come to that conclusion. They're beginning to realize something's wrong here. Our nation needs to return to some level uh, of, of greatness that we used to have. How do we get there? And it doesn't take Einstein to figure out there was a time when businesses closed on Sunday, when the family was together, when they were in church on Sunday, and when we did that, things were better. And from there, it's a short leap, not a quantum leap to political pressure saying, let's get back to the good old days, even if that requires legislation. To secure popularity and patronage, legislators will yield to the demand for a Sunday law. On this battlefield comes the last great conflict of the controversy between truth and error. Not long ago, I got a request from uh, the Adventist World uh, magazine to contribute to an April uh, issue where they're going to be discussing, you know, what is happening in the world? What are the end time things we're supposed to look for? What's your view of signals that the coming of Christ is getting near? I sent in my contribution, and here is my conclusion on that thing. In the time of Christ, and, and for 40 years thereafter, just before the uh, destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus on the Mount of Olives, that afternoon, just shortly before his crucifixion, gave the disciples Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21. It's a laundry list of things you look for, not only for the upcoming destruction of Jerusalem, in which not a single Christian perished because they had Jesus' advice as to what to do, but you take that and you telescope it downstream in time, and it describes an end-time world and tells us what we need to be doing as we face end-time challenges. Now, Ellen White puts it this way. These signals that Jesus gave the disciples, gave the early Christian church, when you see this, don't go back into, into town for your overcoat because you ain't going to be needing it. Where you're going, you need to travel light and you need to travel fast. As the approach of the Roman armies was assigned to the disciples of the impending destruction of Jerusalem... So may this apostasy, this demand for a politically decided day of worship, so may this apostasy be a sign that the angel of mercy is about to take her flight. Now, let's cut to the chase as we close here. In the time of the disciples and 40 years thereafter, when General Titus comes back to Jerusalem, brings the 5th, 10th, 12th, and 15th legions, encircles that city, throws a siege dike around it so you don't get out, the early Christians saw, as that Roman army approached that mysterious zone outside the walls of Jerusalem that was considered holy ground, when they saw that happening, they remembered the words of Jesus and they just fled, fled out into the desert, down to the Jordan River Valley. Not a one of those Christians died. So, 
the early Christians were looking for the intrusion of a pagan force into holy ground. Are we together on that? Is that making sense? Now, carry that down to the end of time. We don't have any physical temple anymore. We don't have Roman legions. The 10th, 12th, or 15th legions aren't the issue now. Something is seeking access to holy ground, but what's the holy ground now? Well, what does the Bible say? Ye are the what? Temple. The temple at the end of time is the human mind. Is that making sense? Now, when a pagan doctrine or force seeks access to that temple of the human mind, that's the signal at the end of time. Don't go back for your overcoat, so to speak. Don't go back to grab the big screen TV. Just leave it there. If it's on, leave it on. Just forget it. And turn loose of this world and get ready to leave this planet straight up because that's the only safe route off of this place. In other words, as we watch our world dissolve into a strange new normal in which a lot of things don't look so good anymore, we don't have to worry because these things are signals of actions heaven has told us are appropriate to take when we see them occur. Let's take our worldview not from news commentators with an agenda. And having been one, I can tell you a lot of them do. Take our worldview from the unfailing bedrock of prophecy. And remember, we have a job to do, even in the challenges of the last days. I like the way Christian Service puts it, that little book. It is so inspiring. Before the flood, God sent Noah to warn the world. As the time of Christ's second appearing draws near, the Lord sends his servants with a warning to the world to prepare for that event. That's our job. We are privileged to save as many people as will listen to us. And in that work, guess whom we have as allies? This great, mysterious, unseen army of the cosmos called angels. You understand that? You have any idea the power of angels? I mean, there was a time when Israel was surrounded. One little city was surrounded by 186,000 mean as sin soldiers. One angel overflew it, and the next morning, none of them had survived. That's the power of angels. We have on our side the army of the cosmos. And in the end of time, we're going to have the privilege of working with angels. Let me give it to you from the book Maranatha, page 205. It is impossible to give any idea of the experience of the people of God who will be alive upon the earth when celestial glory and the repetition of the persecutions of the past are blended. They will walk in light proceeding from the throne of God. By means of angels, there will be constant communication between earth and heaven. And I think the process has begun. Let me close with three quick stories. In Central Africa, there was a city highly uh, devoted to the Islamic faith. And an Adventist pastor there got an invitation to go to a particular address in that city. Well, he got there and he got to thinking, maybe this wasn't the brightest idea I ever had because he recognized the address. It was the home of a very, very noted imam of the Islamic faith. He almost didn't knock on the door, would you? You know, you would think about it, wouldn't you? But the Holy Spirit impressed him. Knock on the door. There's work inside there for you. So he did. The imam answered the door, brings him in. Now there's a whole room full of Muslim men. And at this point, the pastor is probably thinking to himself, I may not be leaving this room alive tonight. At which point the imam said to him, can you baptize us in a secret place? Now at that point, 
after probably recovering his dental work from the floor, <laughs> the pastor summoned his wits and said, well, I, I can do that, but how do I know you're ready for baptism? Oh, the imam said, for the past several months, an angel has come to me every night and instructed me in the words of the Bible. So he went through the list of stuff with all those men, you know, the things that pastors do when they're going to baptize somebody. That room full of Islamic men were intimately acquainted with every feature of the Adventist faith. Same thing happened in the Philippines. A family went out into the mountains, out into a very primitive area, and the uh, native elders and chiefs began to have dreams, saying there are people coming, they're going to be having public meetings. Have your people go and hear them. They were always visited by these beings in white. They did, and the place was overflowing with interested people. The Lord is reaching out. We are so sophisticated now. We're not even sure we still understand the sanctuary message, but out there in the highways and byways of the world, there are people of color who will pick it up like that. The Sea of Glass is going to be a very, very polyglot place, isn't it? So here in the Philippines, the same thing was happening. Angels are working. Now in Australia, and it happened again with the Islamic faith, a, uh, another imam who had an uh, internet ministry invited an Adventist layman to his mosque to talk about the end of times because pious Muslims believe that we're near the end of time. And so this man wanted to hear our perspective on it, and the Adventist layman apparently had done his homework. He had preferred probably a serious life of study to a life of inaction in front of the widescreen. He knew what he was talking about. He was so, the messages he delivered were so fascinating. He was invited back three or four times before they finally heard all they wanted to hear. And then the imam went on the internet and said, listen to the Adventists. They have a message for us about the end of time. Everywhere you look, the Lord is trying to finish this work up, and I think we are going to be privileged to be working very literally with angels. Let's close with a quote from Evangelism, page 120. One of my favorite descriptions of why we're here and what we have to do. The most solemn truths ever entrusted to mortals have been given to us to do what with? To proclaim to the world. <laughs> That's our job. The proclamation of these truths is to be our work. What a time in which to live. I'd rather be living now with that traffic out on the 15 than back when you could drive uninhibited on old 395 to San Diego and never touch your brake. Because this is the era to which we're called. This is the time when heaven is getting ready to wind thing, uh, things up. And it's a privilege to be alive now. Thank you.